Hello, my name is Kristen and I am obsessed with all things play-based and child-led learning. Truly obsessed. I am here to help you navigate the messy and the magical on your journey to a play-based program. It is truly magical on the other side and I want you to feel each day what I feel when I walk into my classroom. I am the homeschool mama to four. I'm the founder of a play and nature-based preschool and forest school and I am here to cheer you on. I'm ready. Are you ready? Let's get going. I have Kyla Machuzik. Did I say it right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> On the podcast today, she is from at nature created play on Instagram. Do you have a website? Yeah. Naturecreativeplay.com. Amazing. So Kyla, tell us a little about yourself and then we're going to dive into doing some comparing and contrasting on cold weather play and hot weather play. Um, and we're going to talk through kind of all of the things that surround both of those climates to give people some mm, grounds to get outside more, I guess, to like bust through some of the myths and really dive into some of the things that we might be scared of when it comes to being in the extreme heat or the extreme cold. Um, So it's going to be a good conversation. Okay. So tell us about you and like what you do and, and where you're at in the world. Yeah, so currently living in Tucson, Arizona, which is uh, why we're talking about the heat and the yeah. desert. Mm-hmm. Um, originally from Ohio, though, so I have lots of experience in um, play settings that are similar to what you were living in. Yeah, I'm in Minnesota, if you haven't listened before, Minnesota, United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um I got my start in environmental education. So I have worked at the Columbus Zoo, the Phoenix Zoo, and the Desert Botanical Garden, all in their education programs, doing everything from summer camp to family programming to field trip programming. Um, Even at the Phoenix Zoo, we even got a Disney grant. So I got to help families in Phoenix create uh, nature play clubs within their areas. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, after that, that was probably eight or so years working between uh, those environmental organizations. I moved into a Reggio-inspired preschool program in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And kind of between my time at the Phoenix Zoo, the Desert Botanical Garden, and into that preschool classroom, I really started exploring, kind of combining all of the different passions. So that environmental education piece with nature play and then, you know, the Reggio philosophy of supporting the whole child. And at that time I got my master's degree from Miami University's global field program, uh, which if you are a teacher, I highly recommend that you look that up. They have an MAT program. Um, so I got to travel the world for three summers oh doing, gosh. yeah, <laughs> doing um, nature play research uh, for nearly three years. <gasps> yeah. I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, you should look it up. It's amazing. I went to Baja, Mexico, swam with whale sharks, went to Mongolia and did some research on the steppes there, and then Paraguay where we worked with um, like an environmental student organization. Wow. Yeah. What a really cool, like, okay, A, working at a zoo is like many (laughs) children's childhood dream of like what they want to be when they grow up. You get to work at a zoo, many zoos. That was my dream. Oh my gosh. And, And that was my dream for a long time. And... Funny enough, I kept ending up in the education departments of all of these zoos. Yeah. (laughs) I'll never forget my Columbus Zoo boss 
she asked me right before I left, she's like, do you want to be in charge of our zoo tots and like zoo kids program, which is, you know, three to five year olds. And I was like, no, no, I I want to be a zookeeper. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. Tell me just because I'm like living a childhood dream right now through you. What was your favorite animal that you got to interact with out of all of your zoo experiences? Okay, so I skipped over this part um, in my original introduction, but yeah. after <laughs> after summer camp at the Columbus Zoo, yeah. I, I couldn't find a zookeeping job. It's very hard for those of you who don't know the zoo world. It's very hard to get into a zoo. So I went to Africa. What? <laughs> yeah, I went to South Africa and um, worked there for a couple months, and I trained ambassador cheetahs. So that is by far my favorite. I've got a nice little cheetah tattoo <gasps> to memorialize it. And um, two of the cheetahs that I trained at the time, their names were Mickey and Minnie, and uh, they went to Texas after I worked with them there. So I don't know if they're still there, but I think their names got changed. Um, but I could probably, I could probably track them. Down. You could probably find out. Oh my gosh! Now I want to know. Yeah, you have to keep me updated on this. This is like. <laughs> good stuff like what if you could reunite with them and it would be like one of those really cute like reuniting videos of like people train lions and then all of a sudden they see the lion in the wild and the lion runs over and hugs them yeah those videos are crazy (laughs) I know oh my goodness okay that's that's really cool I'm hoping to get to go to South Africa in a like next summer so Mm. yeah that's a an interesting place did you get to see like do any like big five go into any reserves or anything while you were there and see any of the big five we did get to go into a reserve that was near where I stayed um and I played kickball with some elephants oh my gosh what an injury oh my goodness you're bringing up memories for me I wouldn't have thought about that until you just asked me that um so they were they were there, um, and they had like a a fence up, but we got to kind of kick him back and forth, and they'd pick it up and throw it at us. Um, and that was kind of near like their entrance, but then we got to go in like the jeep and drive wow. around where it was you know much more open. I got to see giraffe and more elephants. Um, I never saw any of the big cats just like out and about. Yeah. But yeah, lots of, you know, hoofstock. Oh gosh. So cool. Okay. Well, let's get started. <laughs> let's compare and contrast some desert versus tundra and the nature play around both of those climates. Because, um, I mean, we both heard it like, uh, what the the opposition that I used to get as a nature preschool and forest school founder and director was, um, it's too cold to go outside. Um, and I'm sure being in Arizona, you get the opposite. It's too hot to go outside. So let's yeah. kind of um, sort through that a little bit. Is it too hot to go outside? Is it too cold <laughs> to go outside? What are your thoughts being in Arizona? Well, it's so funny, especially thinking about it right now, because it's November. Um, It is the perfect time of year right now to go outside. It is. I mean, that's why people move to Arizona and and Tucson is that most of the year, it's really nice. And the Mm -hmm. part of the year that it's not is the summer and the kids are out of school for the most part. So really, the concern is the very beginning of the year in end of August, September, in the very end of the year in April and May. Uh And I think that you will um, feel the same uh, and agree with this statement of it's to me, it's all about acclimation. Yeah. Right. So when we start off the school year and, you know, by the middle of the afternoon, it's a hundred, 105, maybe 110 out Um, I'm not going to throw kids outside for seven hours Yeah, on the first, second, third day, or even week of school. Yeah. Um, Because I know that they probably spent a good chunk of their summer inside. Yeah. 
And so I take that idea of acclimation and, and let the parents know like, hey, we're gonna start the school year off. Um, we are gonna play outside and we're gonna start off slow mm-hmm. and then build. And then we just build all day as the weather gets nicer for us. <laughs> oh my gosh, and it's so funny because ours is the opposite. It's like <laughs> we just get, get to like naturally acclimate because they start off the year and it's the perfect time to be outside. It's beautiful. And then it gets like steadily colder and colder and colder and colder. So our bodies just naturally acclimate. And the interesting thing about Minnesota is that like when it finally is like 50 degrees in the spring, like people show up outside in shorts because they're like, oh my gosh, it's so warm because it's been so cold and our bodies are so acclimated to freezing. The 50 degrees, 60 degrees feels hot. And Mm -hmm. so like a lot of people do walk around in t-shirts when it's 50, 60 degrees, which 50 and 60 degrees in Arizona, you would probably be in a sweater and a like beanie. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember that from living in Ohio in Mm -hmm. April when, you know, the sun starts shining and the snow starts melting, shorts and t-shirts. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the acclimation thing is so funny because it's so opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Opposite, but the exact same, exact same concept. Yeah. And I think the other important thing here is that, you know, your, you know, heat safety So, you know, that, you know, your signs of heat stress and, you know, ways to keep cool, especially in that first part of the year and then the end of the school year. Um, And, and you get to know your kids as well. Um, You know, I, I am one who flushes so, so, so easily. Um, So I might start turning red before another child would start turning red, um, but it's just natural for me. Um, and so you, you really kind of get to know that about your students as well. Okay. Do you have, okay. So, um, do you have any like tips, like what are your best tips on keeping cool while you're outside in extreme heat? Okay. Yeah. So the first one that I say that a lot of people do not think of is that you need to eat well. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, because, I mean, think about it. You get hangry, right? Yeah. Yeah. And heat only exacerbates that. (laughs) Huh. When I'm hot and hungry, I'm extra hangry. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So people don't think about the nutrition side of your body being in the heat, but it's super important. Interesting. I've never actually considered that with extreme cold because like when you're so cold, like all you can focus is on how cold you are. So you wouldn't even like probably pay attention at all to your hunger cues. Mm, (laughs) But your body's burning so much more energy trying to keep warm that, you know, good protein yeah. meal is, is important in the cold. Um, and like carbs, salt, you know, getting your electrolytes oh. via salt and fruit are going to be super important in the desert. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Well, I learned something new today. <laughs> yeah. So that's one that people don't often think of. Um, the other ones that I think people do are about, you know, I, every outdoor classroom that I design is going to have lots of shade yeah. structures so that if a child wants to be outside, but wants to be able to remove themselves from like the sun beating down on them that mm-hmm. they can, Yeah. Um, some choose to install like misting systems or yeah. have teachers have spray bottles with them. Um, and then also making sure we take lots and lots and lots of water breaks. Definitely like reminding the children, like, okay, time to go get some water. Cause sometimes they're going to be so deep in play that they're going to not think about it. Yeah. We used to just, um, start practicing by yelling out water break and everyone would kind of stop what they're doing, come grab some water and then go right back into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think my, my first like inclination hearing that is like, Oh, I don't want to stop their play. However, I know it's so important. And 
they get so used to it that they don't miss a beat. They're like, oh yeah, it's water break time. They run, they get their water and they go right back to what they're doing. Well, and if you like want to rely on Maslow's hierarchy of needs at all, like you have to be well hydrated and well fed. Like you can't be hungry and you can't be thirsty in order for like self-actualization, the true learning, the play to happen. So you got to take care of those basic needs. Yeah. No itchy butts. No itchy butts. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Um, Okay. So the misting system, like I didn't even know that existed. Like, oh, really? No. And I found, I saw that for the first time actually in a program in Portland. Um, They had a misting system for when it's really hot there. And I was like, that's genius. I didn't know that. I'm surprised you saw it in Portland. I know. I know. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, like they had just gotten back from like a forest excursion and they were all hot and like all the kids and all the teachers just kind of stood there underneath the like black mister thing. And they all just like drank water and they were all hanging out under there. And I was like, what? Like, what is that? And they're like, it's mister. Yeah, like the Phoenix Zoo. I mean, you literally walk around the zoo and there are misting systems everywhere around the entire zoo. That's really neat. Yeah. That just reminded me, though, of another strategy that I use after we come inside from outdoor play Uh is we go in, you know, into the classroom and we just lay down. Oh. And then like make sure that our wrists and our ankles, um, I let our children play barefoot. I know. Yeah. Some programs don't allow that, but taking their shoes off is such an easy way to help cool their bodies. And so mm-hmm. we would just go lay in like a Shavasana style pose and, and let our bodies kind of cool down that way. Interesting. Huh. Um, do you suggest always having like a water source for water play in extreme heat, or is that not something that's a necessity? I suggest a water source for play regardless. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've actually had some cool conversations with people who have preschools here in Tucson. And one woman that I was speaking to, she has a dunk tank in her preschool classroom. It's like a, like a trough kind of. Yeah. And she fills it and she allows the children to submerge their entire bodies because we have, you know, incredibly low humidity here. So they dunk their whole bodies, they get out and she's like, and then we learn about evaporative cooling. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I can hear in people's minds, them saying, Oh, we can't have a water source that's over so and so many inches deep. Um, so like, how does she get around that with licensing? Does she have like them just like a pool waiver? Um, I don't know if she is a licensed. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something, you know, the schools that I design outdoor classrooms for, that's one of my very first questions. Are you going to license the space or not? Um, but a really good way to, put the things that you know are great for children in an outdoor play space um, is to do permission slip like waivers. Yeah. Um, You can choose not to license it, but have all your parents sign permission slips for the kids to go out into the space. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So in Minnesota, you, the only way you could have an unlicensed program is if it's um, you are a, Okay. So it's different for like school age versus younger children, but for younger children, the only way it can be unlicensed is if, um, you are taking care of less than two families, children's two families are less. Mm. So you can only have, you would only be able to have like a child from one family or siblings and then another family, I believe. It might have changed since I did licensed in-home childcare, but otherwise you have to be licensed um, no matter what. For school age, there's some loop arounds for that. You can be a nonprofit organization um, geared towards children. And 
if you are serving them less than a certain amount of hours a year, then you can be unlicensed. Like if it's an after school thing or when school is not in session. Um, so we were able to run our forest school program unlicensed for school age kids because we are a nonprofit organization. So, but if you were a for-profit, you wouldn't be able to. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little bit different. Yeah. In every state, I'm sure. Different different. state to state. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And country. I mean, we have people who listen from all over the world too. So I'm sure it's different in lots of different countries as well. Mm -hmm. So many, so many differences there. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So I'm trying, so like Minnesota, when it's super cold, you can't take food outside to eat. You can. Okay. I take that back. There are forest school programs in Minnesota. I'm not sure if they're licensed or not, Um, but they take children out in like severe, severe cold, like where I wouldn't be comfortable taking children out in. And I'm a forest school founder, Um, but like negative 30, negative 20. Um, But they like basically you, you can't see any skin. They wear goggles and everything. Um, so we aren't that, we don't go out, like we know our limits and children's limits a little bit too. So, and again, it's all about acclimation, right? So those kids, because they're taken out for long periods of time and they're dressed appropriately, they're probably very well dressed as far as base layers and all of that kind of stuff. Um, they can do it safely. So, um, when it's, yeah, extreme cold. So when we get out, it's just like encouraging them to move around a lot because if you stay stationary, you get cold. So encouraging movement, large body play outside, um, encouraging the appropriate clothing, of course. And that's a huge issue in cold weather places because, you know, you forget your wool socks or you forget your under the underlayer or whatever it might be. Um, or if you played and the snow is just a little bit wet, your snow pants are going to be soaked for the afternoon session. It's not going to be comfortable. So clothing is a really sticky issue in cold weather play. Um, but there's lots of ways that you can work around it. You can have stockpiles of extra clothes. Um, we used to require children to have two pairs of mittens And then we ended up doing a um, mitten rental program so that we would provide like the right kind of mitten that fits very well over winter jackets. And like um, then they would have dry mittens every time they went outside because then we had like a mitten dryer that we would put them in and dry them through so they could use them again for the afternoon. Um, But we, there was days when it was so cold. So our threshold in the program that I had was negative seven. So if it was with wind chill, so if it's colder than negative seven, we wouldn't go outside. Um, And when we would, when we would go outside, there was many times where we would go out and we would play because it's safe to play for like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes before your face starts to freeze. So um, we would come back inside and warm up, read a story. Everybody would leave all of their gear on and then we would go back outside. So it's not ideal for play by any means when it's that cold out, but there's so many health benefits too for being outside and moving your body and breathing in that cold air as well. So um yeah, just a little a little different here in Minnesota. And you can't have a water source, of course, when it's that cold that it freezes instantly. So um yeah, it's all about the layers, the the wearing the appropriate clothing and the high quality clothing. And that was I think our number one thing. The number one thing that I hear from cold weather programs is like children aren't dressed appropriately for long periods of time outside. So that's like our biggest barrier. Yeah, I definitely don't hear that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I don't hear much about that topic. I wouldn't say at all, but not often. Yeah. 
Um, so as a consultant, you know, I'm working with a bunch of different schools and, you know, whatever their policies are, that's what they're going to follow. Yeah. Um, in Tucson and Phoenix, the issues are extreme heat advisories and also pollution advisories. Okay. So those are the two biggest things um, that we see. And the schools have different policies on the days that we have extreme heat warnings. Um, and so whatever those schools policies are, you know, I of course encourage them to follow their policies yeah, yeah. and make recommendations. You and know, there you if go. it's an extreme heat day, get your kids out very first thing, as soon as they get to school, 7 30, 8 a.m. You know, it'll only be a hundred degrees instead of 115. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I make recommendations like that. And then the other things I hear about are more about like sunscreen. Because um, mm. clothing for us isn't as much of an issue. You know, we want to make sure they have the right shoes yeah. um, to play in. But other than that, especially in like the nice parts of the year, I mean, they can kind of, as long as they're wearing play clothes, they're going to be, they're going to be fine. Yeah. So the sunscreen is really the biggest issue. Um, because many programs you're not allowed to apply to children. Um, we, we're not allowed to touch the what? kids to put their sunscreen on them. So how do you put, how do you keep them safe? Yeah. So the parents are often, and in a lot of programs that I've worked with, the parents are often told you put it on them the second that you drop them off. Um, and then the kids are the ones that are supposed to reapply uh, throughout the day, which we know how that goes. <laughs> That's just for real. That just breaks my heart a little bit because it is so painful to get a sunburn. Yeah. And it's so bad for your, it's just so bad for you. Like that just seems like, oh, let's just like take the risk of them getting a severe sunburn because we're scared an adult is going to like touch a child. Yeah, I will say it's a it's a concern that is brought up particularly by parents but now that you're saying that thinking about my time in the classroom uh, we had an indoor outdoor classroom that shared a door so we were like in out in out doors yeah. open kids could be which in, in whatever space they wanted um we had nature day every you know tuesday or wednesday we spent all day outside and um now that you say that i don't think i ever had a kid with a sunburn really yeah so <clears throat> that was one thing that I was really, really, even for summer in Minnesota, like when we would do forest, like, so we had the school age wild rumpus, it was called. Um, and the kids would be outside all day in the summer. They would go to the county parks and they would be there all day for seven hours. And I was a huge stickler on sunscreen because I never wanted a child to go home sunburned. And there was, there was a handful of times where kids, like if the, you know, they were old enough and they thought they could apply their own face sunscreen or whatever. And they ended up with a sunburn. And then I hear from a parent, you know, like they're sunburned. And that was just like a no, no children cannot get sunburned. It's that's so interesting because like I've experienced sunburns in Minnesota. So I would think but maybe skin is different in air. Like maybe the your skin is like acclimated differently than Minnesota skin because like just an example, there's a lot of people in Minnesota who have polymorphic light eruption, which is, um, and people might not even, they like, it might be something that they develop as they get older, but me being fair skinned, red haired, blue eyed. And some of my children who have the same coloring, um, they, every spring, the first time we go outside, we all erupt in hives. Like we get hives from the sun and mine actually continues. It kind of gets worse as I get older, but like, even when I, so when my kids and I go on vacation in the middle of the winter, 
when we go to like Florida and we spend that first day or even it's actually usually the whole trip. Um, all of my kids, well, three of them, two of them, three, two or three, it kind of depends on how it just depends on things. But, um, we, I have to give them Benadryl because they get hives and it's not even because they're sunburned. It's just because we were like extreme doses of vitamin D that our bodies aren't used to. <laughs> yeah we're kind of laughing about the acclimation of skin but I I do I feel like there's some truth to that yeah I don't know I know people are really passionate about their sunscreen and like skin safety so I don't want anybody to come at me (laughs) 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 Mm -hmm. Uh, I am also also very fair skin light-eyed blonde hair and I don't sunburn much here unless I'm like, if I go on like a three hour hike and then like, don't put it on the back of my neck, like it'll turn red. But if I'm somebody who like burns typically, I went to the beach, like I would, I would burn, but I haven't had many sunburns here. The last sunburn I had here was over the summer in the pool. And that was just dumb. I didn't put sunscreen on at all. And oh, I was out there wow. for hours, but playing outside when I was a teacher, I didn't, I never got a sunburn either hmm. and I didn't put sunscreen on. So I don't know, maybe there's something to be said about skin acclimation to the sun too. Well, yeah. And I think that's just another thing of like knowing the children in your program and having conversations with parents because like my sister, her kids, she doesn't have to put sunscreen hardly on them at all, all summer. And me, I have to like slather it on my kids and I reapply sunscreen on myself at least every 90 minutes. Like mm-hmm. I go through so much sunscreen because I, I burn like instantaneously. So it's all about just knowing the children in your program and what, what their needs are. Right. Yeah. Everybody's needs are different. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Okay. Anything else you want to add about like protection or gear or um, clothing or anything like that for hot weather play? I think just the biggest things for us are wearing appropriate play clothes. Um, You know, clothes that parents and kids are okay with getting dirty, making sure they have the right shoes. And, you know, we we talk about like UV protectant shirts, like sun shirts, um, but I don't actually see them often in use. Hmm. Um, I know some schools in this area will require kids to wear hats when they go outside, but again, it's school to school policy, you know, different schools do different things. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Okay. Let's chat about another, um, let's talk about environmental features of the desert versus the tundra and like what are some of the holdbacks around the that so what are you finding in the desert yeah so it's really interesting because if i was to say the word nature play to mm-hmm. most people they think big trees yeah. grassy hills forest yeah streams uh, with cool water like that's what a lot of people picture. And that's one of the reasons I love my job so much is because I went from a place like that and I came to Tucson and I'm like, all right, challenge accepted. Here we go. Like, how do we figure out how to play in this place that is not at the forefront of the mind when you think about nature play? So big like environmental concerns other than the, the heat, um, it's just our natural landscape (laughs) you know cactus yeah um our trees have spines on them like don't you have cactuses that like shoot spines out at you if you get too close (laughs) okay so what you're thinking of is called a choya cactus okay and um that is a a myth a common (laughs) misconception (laughs) good I'm glad we're talking about this (laughs) But there is a choya that they call jumping choya. And so the reason that they call it that is um, 
it it will reproduce if a piece of it breaks off and uh-huh. then falls in the dirt and it, it can grow again. Oh. So it is evolved in a way that if an animal brushes up against it, it hitches a ride. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like a burr. Like we have burrs up here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super similar idea. So if you know coyotes walking by, just brushes up against the cholla, it's gonna hitch a ride and then you know fall off later and replant. Yeah. They call it jumping choya because you don't have to touch it uh hard like at all for it yeah. to break off. Oh my god. So gosh. people are like, oh my god, it jumped on me, but really like you touched it and you just didn't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, so funny. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean our natural landscape is rock, dirt, cactus, spiny trees, choy is a cactus, you know, spiky bushes. And I want to honor that when I design outdoor spaces, um, that that is our land. Um, And so figuring out ways to to honor our environment in a a classroom, outdoor classroom, that's going to have three, four and five year olds in it. Yeah. Um, And then aside from that, you know, people often talk about rattlesnakes and scorpions and javelina and bobcats and mountain lions Mm -hmm. and spiders and tarantulas and yep all of those live here too yeah uh okay so talk me through some of those things like because I'm terrified of venomous snakes (laughs) I mean I think I would take a tarantula any day over a rattlesnake (laughs) yeah um I know people who would also feel the opposite (laughs) Spiders are scary to some people. Snakes are too. Okay. So yeah, the thing about rattlesnakes is is that, yeah, if you get bit by one, it's serious. And so that's what makes it scary. Yeah. Um, Especially for a child. Um, So I 1000% understand that concern. Yeah. And in my neighborhood, I've seen dozens of rattlesnakes just- just walking in my neighborhood and uh, so the thing about all of the things that I just mentioned the cactus the snakes tarantulas are they're things that we live with every day um and in our neighborhoods Mm -hmm. so children who grow up here from a young age are made very aware that if you touch a cactus like it's going to hurt yeah Um, and so that's just something that we're born we're taught and we know. Yeah. And so putting those elements in a space, you know, I haven't had much concern because it's yeah. a national environment and, and kids know. Um, as far as snakes go, when I teach teachers, um, snakes seem to be a, a huge concern yeah. off the top of their minds. But when they really think about it, um, they're not as concerned as as they might have originally thought after we have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So I tell them, you know, you need to learn about the snakes that you live with, Mm -hmm. like actually learn about them from like reputable sources. Yeah. And when they do, they will understand that rattlesnakes are not always out all year long or at all times of day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right about now is when all the rattlesnakes start to go into their holes and hang out for the winter. Mm -hmm. So the chance of seeing one now until springtime is significantly lower than it was last month. (laughs) Um, so knowing that about them and knowing, knowing what, know what they look like, let your kids know what they look like, what they sound like. Mm -hmm. Um, A rattlesnake sounds a little bit different than I think most people think it does. Okay. Um, so I encourage people to like play the sound, find a rattlesnake video and like go listen to what it sounds like. Um, and then I always encourage schools that have outdoor classrooms that they're doing a sweep of the classroom before they let the kids in it every single yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so that they go out in the classroom and they're looking for anything. New burrows. Yes. Trash even. Things that people throw over the fence, yes. under bushes for yes. anything that could be hiding. So doing a sweep in the morning, um, I always, always 
suggest that they do that. Yes. That's huge. And think, yeah. And I think they should do it, do it in any place, but for yeah. animals that like to hide, like, like rattlesnakes, they like to hide in bushes and, and cool, dark places. Um, it's super important to, you know, really have somebody there that will go look. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So environmental features that we have to be aware of are, well, like, so if you're out in the forest and it's forest play, of course, it's like downed trees and branches and falling hazards. So like if you're climbing a fallen tree, you have to do some like risk assessment around that. So there's a lot of risk assessment, kind of like what you were talking about. You need to go do a sweep of the outdoor classroom, the outdoor space. That was something like when we would do take kids out into the forest to just play in the wild, you had to do a lot of like on the spot, like risk assessment to say, okay, what are the hazards around what they're wanting to do and how they're wanting to use this space? How can we remove some of those hazards to make sure that they can, this can be a yes environment. Um, so it's, yeah, lots of fallen trees, um, slippery, like in the winter it's slippery spaces so ice can accumulate under snow and it can be super slippery and a fall hazard however young children are if they're like walking on a, a flat surface and it's slippery and they have snow gear on like chances are it's kind of fun when they fall and they slip around for an adult it's a lot more it hurts um so slippery surfaces are a big one. Um, the sun and our non-acclimated skin is a big one here. Um, what else would be, the, I mean, the wind. The wind would be a huge one as far as like wind chill and freezing skin if you have exposed skin. As far as like animals that we need to be, if we're outside playing for any amount of time, um, the biggest thing that we have to worry about here is deer ticks because they do carry really serious diseases. Um, so they are actually like people are afraid of them. Like we are not we we don't like deer ticks and they're so little that it's really hard to find them. So we do a lot of education around deer ticks with the children and with the parents as far as like um they children need to be able to like learn how to like look at their own body to find any deer ticks. Um, the nice thing is, is you can like spray for those types of things. If you have like a nature playground, like that kids just use, but if you go out into the woods, obviously there's going to be a lot of deer ticks. So we do things like wearing tall white socks that go up to your knees because you can see them when they like try to hitch a ride on you. Um, and then also teaching the children they need to look over their whole bodies and then teaching the parents that when they get home, they need to check their hair and they need to check their backs and places that the kids can't see. So um, the thing with a wood tick or a deer tick is, is you don't know sometimes you even have one on you. And three, four days later, you might see this giant, it's called a bullseye rash. So it's like a rash that develops where the tick bit and put their venom into you. Um, and then, I mean, that can cause some serious, like lifelong issues as far as Lyme's disease and whatnot. So that's our biggest one. Um, but using bug spray with DEET in it, and there's a lot of like information out there is like, should you use DEET or should you not use DEET? And then there's things like you can spray clothing with permethrin, which is, uh, um, it instantly kills any tick that would touch your clothing. Um, there's also clothing that is made that has permethrin in it. Um, so that if any bug touches it, it will instantly die. <laughs> um, but those are, yeah, those are, that's probably our biggest one as far, as far as like, um, I'm trying to think like if there's any, I mean, we come across signs of wild animals like deer and um, fox and things like that, but that's not during the day. Like it's not, it's a non-issue. They hear you coming and they, they skedaddle. <laughs> yeah. Um, we did have a skunk 
once that was in our fire pit at forest school and we had to work together to get the baby. It was a baby and it couldn't get out. It was so sad. (laughs) And so we had to work together to like get this baby skunk out of this fire pit without getting sprayed. Um, And he was like just learning how to like use his butt to like, oh, he was so cute. It was so cute. And we ended up like throwing like a slanted just some logs in there that he could climb up. And it was like a great learning experience. We stood way back and just like watched him get out and then like watched him kind of tootle around and his mom wasn't that far away. And she came and found him and then they like walked off and the other little baby skunks that were with the mom. It was adorable. That's so sweet. (laughs) It was. It was so sweet. Yeah. So that's really our only only thing but there's ways to make sure that we stay safe you can't stay inside because of a deer tick so yeah. you reminded me when you were talking about spraying for ticks um a lot of homeowners here spray for well they spray for scorpions food right so scorpions don't come around um which i think schools likely also do that too yeah um, and we'll spray for that as well um but you know it's not it's not great for kids or the environment um but yeah. the interesting thing about scorpions <laughs> the interesting thing about scorpions is they tend to stay kind of localized okay. so if you've not seen one in your space um you're likely not going to see one yeah and so that can be um really i don't know like impactful when talking to families yeah. about it mm-hmm. same for scorpion or snakes kind of just depending on what part of town you're in yeah you may or may not have them there as well um when I was building the school that I'm the outdoor classroom I'm working on this past Saturday um they were building a pallet stage mm-hmm. so the base of the stage was a couple of pallets and then you know the pallet background and when they were building it you know, the first thing I thought of was like, oh, pallet is a great place for a snake to hide. Mm, yeah. So what we chose to do was to fill the pallet with dirt. Oh. So that it didn't make like a great, easy way for the snake to just go in and chill under it. Oh, yeah. So those are some of the kind of modifications that we think about when designing outdoor classrooms here are minimizing burrows for those types of animals. Right. I'm kind of like thinking about opposite sides of our country right now, as far as like Florida and alligators. Um, I mean, like you walk by an open water source in Florida, you got to be careful because <laughs> you never know if there's an alligator in there. They're yep. so stealthy. And then like my friend Tiffany, who has a program in Washington state up in the, like she's in the uh, Carson uh, Columbia river gorge area. Um, She's in the, her programs inside a national forest, the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. And there's many times where, well, there was one year where she would call and she would be like, um, there was some sort of a cougar outside of our playground and they like at night and it would spray its urine all over like the outside. It would like out the outside of her fence. So they would come to school and there would be like big cat urine smell. Yeah. And oh. But that's like a a thing like it, I know nature programs in Canada, we had training around that when I went to my forest school practitioner training up there. Like we had to that was one of the things that they were like, you have to be very on your feet because big cats like cougars or mountain lions, they are really stealthy and like you don't know you're being followed until it's on you. So it would be interesting to see like what their strategies are for some of those other types of critters that they encounter in those other spaces. So, so much to think about. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not a reason to be scared to go outside because there's so many things that you can do to, to make sure that you're mitigating those risks. There's, Lots of tools out there as far as like environmental risk assessments and things like that that can kind of guide you through different weather patterns and like what's the risks with weather and what's the risks with this 
um, this one space in general or what's the risk um, to our bodies. So it can kind of help you walk through all of those things. Um, I don't have any resources off the top of my head, but I know if you did a Google search, you'd be able to find all sorts of risk assessments for nature play programs. I'm sure the Natural Start Alliance probably has something, but I don't know. So, yeah, and I think uh, the thing that I tell every school <clears throat> and teacher that I work with um, is make the expectation known up front. Let mm -hmm. your parents know right away and give them the resources to feel comfortable. Yeah. You know, this is what we're going to do when there's an extreme heat warning. And this is the expectation for the type of clothing that they bring. You know, this is the expectation for sunscreen. Yeah. Um, this is the expectation for snack or whatever it is. Um, just letting them know right up front that this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it and why it's important. Let's, so let's move into talking about parent ex like parent attitudes, parents and their opposition to certain types of outdoor play, because I hear that all over the United States when I go and speak. It's like, well, the parents don't send their children in appropriate gear or the parents say it's too cold. Why are you going outside today? And it, the interesting thing, too, is that in other parts of the country, like in Arizona, if it all of a sudden was negative 20 degrees out or negative five, nobody would go outside. Right. <laughs> or even if it's like 20 degrees in Arizona or 32 degrees, like if it's freezing um, in the desert part of Arizona, because there are places in Arizona where it does get that cold on a on a like it, it does happen in the winter, like in Flagstaff. Right. Like it snows there. Is nearly just the same as what it's like where you are. <laughs> exactly. So um, where you are in the desert, if it was like. 30 degrees, you would have parents being like, it's so cold. You can't go outside. Um, so yeah, let's talk through that a little bit. And like, what's the pushback you get in the desert? And then we can talk about the pushback we get here in Minnesota. Well, so it's really funny because it snows maybe two or three days each winter in Tucson. Okay. It doesn't stick yeah. because it's too warm, but it will snow and everyone goes outside. Yeah, because <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> They're like, oh my gosh, it's snowing. And everybody runs outside and then pretty quickly goes right back inside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's, and, and actually it's the same when it rains too. So our, we have a couple of rainy seasons, but summer is our biggest one when kids mostly are not in school. But then if it, you know, we go through fall with no rain and then it rains, starts raining again in the winter, same idea. We run outside because it's raining, um, but it's not something that they're acclimated to. So like, oh, rain, oh, gross. I'm yeah. used to, to sunny and warm all the time and like run back inside. So it's really interesting. We get that excitement, but pretty quickly turn it back. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Okay. So like if we're speaking about like a traditional program who is wanting to be able to incorporate more player has all of a sudden come upon like, oh, we need to get kids outside in all types of weather. And the parents of those programs aren't used to children playing in extreme heat. Like what are some tips to give those types of programs the know-how, the gumption, the like um, courage to stand up and say, yes, here's what we're doing and here's why it's important. So my first suggestion is always arm yourself with the evidence, okay. um, know why it's important. Yeah. So doing the research and knowing, you know, how outdoor play builds resiliency and is good for health and well-being and mental health and like have that information and know it so yeah. that you can share it. Yeah. Um, and then my second piece of advice would be to get ahead of it. So you know that 100 degree weather is coming, yeah. but right now it's 80 degrees and it's great. Yeah. Post out something on like your family you know, newsletter or your classroom site or whatever it is that you use 
in advance and say, mm -hmm. you know, if today was a great day outside, we did this, this, and this, this is what they learned. And it was amazing. And we're going to continue doing this over the next couple of months. And here are some strategies we're going to use. Mm -hmm. And this is why we're going to continue doing it. Mm -hmm. mm, great, great tips. One of the things that I really love about my son's um, elementary school. It's not like an outdoor school at all, but they do go outside for recess a couple times a day. He's a second grader. Um, his principal, like I don't hear from his principal at all unless the weather is changing. And he, he'll send out like an email and a text and we'll get like multiple of them. So it's just such a good, it's, it's a good reminder because even though I'm all for playing outside, I don't check the weather. Like I don't check the weather. Like I just, I don't. And I hear about what the weather's going to be like from other people. And I don't waste my time checking the forecast. So um, I used to when I was like the director of a program, of course, but now that I'm not, I don't go on and check the weather. So I love like when I get those texts from him because then it reminds me, okay, yeah, I got to get, I got to like dig out all of the winter gear. Like he just sent one out um, last, late last night saying, okay, it's here. Like we need to, the weather looks like it's going to like dramatically get colder throughout the day on Thursday. So you need to make sure that you've got your children prepared and ready to go dig out your stuff tonight. And, um, and then they, there's always the offer of like, if you're having trouble finding the appropriate gear, please let us know. So, um, yeah, I love that he takes the time to do that because it makes it, I, I don't take the time to do that and it helps me as a parent. So those reminders are so good too. And I think sometimes we think we're bothering parents by reminding them continually of making sure their children are dressed appropriately, but parents are so busy that like, I love getting those reminders because I'm like, oh yeah, okay. We, and it helps me with my whole family then too, you know, to be ready for what we have come in the next few days. So, yeah. And as a parent getting that reminder, I think, um, helps avoid like negative emotions. So if you've been prepared in advance, you're like, okay, this is what I need to do versus if you're not prepared in advance and all of a sudden your kids outside and they weren't prepared and then you're mad yeah because they didn't have what they needed and you know somebody just assumed that you should know and so you stop that from from happening mm -hmm. and stopping them from getting angry about it and being you know proactive and and preparing them i think is gonna go a long way exactly yes um, as far as like, let's talk about like the middle states where it's like, they like won't go outside if it's way too cold or way too hot. And there's just like this, like nice, even keel temperature. And I'm talking more about like traditional programs here where you, like, I always tend to hear like parents when they show up, say it's too cold to go outside and it's like 45 degrees and to us in Minnesota, that's a beautiful day. Um, to you down there, that might be a freezing cold day. And in a middle, like a Midwestern state, like that might be, some parents might think it's too cold. So how do, so staying on top of it and saying, here's why it's good. Like, that's so important. But what are some tips to give to programs when they need to go outside, but don't have the appropriate clothing. Like what's, what are some ideas that we can give those or like being, like being able to play in the rain. Like, I think it's so important to be able to play in the rain, but a lot of programs see rain and they're like, absolutely not. Um, so how can we, how can we take baby steps to help people help parents and I mean, maybe you've already listed them all. I don't know what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I'm trying to think. I'm just trying to like how we can get people to stop being like, it's too cold. It's too hot. Well, let me, let me tell you this because this has been on my mind lately. Um, one of my very good friends 
she's actually a, a yoga instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, she asks me this question all the time and I think it's applicable. Okay. And it is, what would it feel like if, hmm. and then you know, whatever it is, what would it feel like if just today we let kids play in the puddles? What would it feel like if today we went out in the snow and saw what happened? Yeah. What would it feel like if we just leaned into the play today? I love that. Have you made that into an Instagram post yet? Uh, No, but I will. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) What would it feel like if? And you can come at that from a few different directions. It could be like, what would it feel like for the parents if? What would it feel like for the children if? And what would it feel like for the caregiver slash teacher if? You can kind of put yourself in everybody's shoes then. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way to sort through it all and decide, should we do this or should we not do this? Or, Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It, that question has has shown up in many parts of my life. And I, I think it's, it's applicable in so many, so many areas. Huh. I love that. I'm going to start using that. Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to use that with my own kids. Yeah. I mean, the first time she ever used it, it was really like, what would it feel like if you squatted a, a little bit lower, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so totally different context, but it, it works. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, think I love that's, that. That's the, that's the gold nugget, I think, of this podcast. I think so. <laughs> I think it's the golden nugget for my life. <laughs> like, wow. I, that's amazing. What would it feel like if everybody needs that on a poster and, like, put it up on the wall? Yeah, I've been talking a lot about, like, really, what is my goal? I don't, I don't even think I've said what I do for a living in this episode. No, you haven't. Tell people because they can hire you. <laughs> um, so I help schools design or transform outdoor spaces into outdoor nature play spaces and classrooms mm-hmm. and then do professional development with teachers about all things play and nature play. So loose parts and risky play and child-led learning and learning invitations and play observation and documentation and teacher trauma is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, now I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> well, that you, so you did, that's what you do for a living. Yeah. And, um, and what oh. does that feel like? What does that feel <laughs> like? If no, just, <laughs> So yeah, I've been talking about my, my whole purpose, you know, the whole reason why, behind I do what I do. And, you know, it's, it's my lived experience of going from traditional to play-based mm-hmm. and seeing myself, the power uh, and impact that that's had on my life and children's lives. Yes. Just, gosh. So the question is like, what, what would it feel like if you just like lean in to some of these ideas? Yeah. Because that's really what it's about. You know, I, I can't go into a school, do, you know, six hours of professional development and completely change their worlds. But like, what if they chose to implement one or two things that I talked about? Yeah. That's, that's really it. That's what I'm trying to do is just, you know, step-by-step step help them kind of lean in to yes. play. Yes. Um. Bev Boss used to say, start in the corner, like baby steps and don't try to change everything all at once. Just start in the corner with one thing, then move to the next thing. If you're making change, just don't, I mean, you don't have to like jump in and if you're a traditional program and then all of a sudden like, oh, now I know that it's important to get outside in all types of weather. And so now we're going to go outside every single day for eight hours a day. Like, don't start there. Like- slowly acclimate yourself and the children and the parents to those new ideas and new ways of doing things. So yeah. 
Amazing. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that you didn't get to speak about? I don't think so. I think that the last thing I said was really, it's been on my heart a lot lately. Like the why behind all of this. And, and, you know, I was that teacher that wanted to be in control as I know you've spoken about yourself being that too. Like, you know, I wanted to be in charge and in control and I was uncomfortable. Um, you know, even when kids like stand up to me in that way that kids do, like it still pulls at my teacher trauma, right? And like yeah. still gives me that like, oh, reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been there. And yeah. so if somebody listening to this is there right now, like I just want to say with those baby steps and and leaning in and asking yourself, what if? what would it feel like? Like you'll, you can get there and you can get yeah. to this place. Um, and I think you probably feel the same of once I started making that transition, it became so much more peaceful and joyful for me yeah, and for the children that mm-hmm. I was working with. And I can't, I could never go back now. And I will advocate until the day I die that play is the way to yes <laughs> it is it just it's so it just play in all at all ages just I don't know it just makes life probably what it's meant to be right yeah absolutely yeah. Mm-hmm. well thank you so much Kyla this was amazing um can you repeat again where people can find you if they want to reach out Yeah. So on Instagram at nature created play or nature created play.com. Amazing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Hey, I need you to do me a huge, 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 huge favor. If you liked listening and you want to be able to hear more, can you please go on to iTunes and leave me a five-star review? I would so appreciate it. And then connect with me on Instagram. It's learning.wild. We'll see you around.